um, not a member of our church and you're interested in membership, we're having a membership dinner this Sunday um, at my house, uh, next Sunday, actually, a week from tonight. Um, and if you'd like more information or like to come, um, reach out to me. I'd be glad to, uh, um, to, to invite you and to, to bring, give you more information. Um, so that's the announcements uh, this morning. Uh, the text we're going to be in is, is in Daniel 6, um, Daniel in the lion's den. And, and over the past few weeks, I've sort of intentionally read longer um, uh, scripture uh, for a reason. And so I'm going to do that again tonight, push our boundaries a little bit. I'm going to read um, the story for us and then pray for us. But Daniel 6, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 and then verses 16 through 23. Um, and so even though you think you may know this story well, um, close your eyes, give fresh ears to hear this, this account. Daniel 6, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint unless against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And the stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, as the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, he came near to the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servants of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den. And no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're doing in this world? That, Lord, you want to, um, to invade our lives with your grace and your kingdom. And so I pray you would, through this text now, open our eyes to see what you are doing. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, about a week or so ago, I was driving home um, along 79th Street, so just a half a mile south of here, and, and someone pulled out right in front of me in a way that this never happened um, to me driving a car before. And, and there was no way to avoid an accident, no way that she wasn't going to drive right into me. I mean, she pulled out. We were both driving fast. And, and yet, as, as she pulled out and an accident loomed imminent in front of me, time slowed down, and I, I had this thought to myself. I'm a really good driver. I can avoid this. I'm in control. Uh, no. Uh, she hit my car, and, and it, wasn't, it wasn't too serious. Um, in fact, it, it, thankfully, I had two of my sons in, in the back of my car, and, and the moment just proved further that, uh, that Spanberg men can sleep through anything, including car accidents. <laughs> my son Micah was out and, and didn't wake up through the whole ordeal. Um, but, but reflecting on this moment, my, my reaction to, to a certain accident surprised me. All right, what... A, 
What a ridiculous to think, thing to think when, when there's two cars traveling quickly right at one another that, oh, I'm in control of this. And it might have been ridiculous to think in that moment, but we, we have all in this culture been trained from the earliest days of our lives to think we're mostly in control of our lives. Right? I was in control of my breakfast as a kid. Right? Cheerios, Frosted Flakes, Captain Crunch, it's my choice. I'm in control. What was I going to wear to school each day? That's my decision. I'm in control. What, what career path, what college should I choose? I'm in control. I've been, I've been trained from the beginning of my life to think that. And so Eugene Peterson, um, a pastor, a professor, he, he wrote this about this, this reality you and I have lived into most of our lives, which is, is this. He writes, our tastes, inclinations, appetites are consulted endlessly. We learn early with multiple confirmations as we grow older that we have a say in the formation of our lives and within certain bounds, the decisive say. I have the decisive say in my life. You have the decisive say in yours, which raises the question, what happens when you don't? When you no longer have control? What happens when even, even though everything in, in you is convinced that you're going to avoid the oncoming accident, the reality is the car's going to hit. That we want to believe we're in control. We want to believe we have control. But, but I would say, as I've reflected on Daniel, the book of Daniel, the life of Daniel, the last seven weeks, and this story in particular, there are only two ways to live your life. One is, is to live with the fundamental assumption that you are in control of your life, that you're running things, that you have device, the de- decisive say or you will pray. But there's no way to merge those two lives. Either you think you're in control of your life or you pray. And so this morning we come to really what, what is the defining moment of Daniel's life. Daniel's close to 80 years old at this point. So don't think of, of a younger guy facing down lines. This is an, an older man who has lived a, a long time. And so for seven weeks we've been looking at, at Daniel's life progress through many, many years. And, and we've, we've watched him as a man of faith try to navigate his life through a world that was very secular, that was very hostile and against um, his faith commitments. And we try to think through how similarly we as Christians in our own day and age have to think through what does it mean to live a life of faith in the God of the Bible when many in the culture around us don't share that, that faith. And here in Daniel 6, what we find is Daniel's backbone, his foundation, his spine, was prayer. But this isn't a narrative about how to pray. Um, it, it's, it's what I said a moment ago. It's more about there's, there's two frames with which to look at your life. Either a frame of, I have the defi- decisive say, I'm in control, I, I'm the one running things, or, or prayer. And so uh, that's why I would say, whether you're a Christian or not, I think this message is, is relevant because Daniel, Daniel 6 is pushing back hard against, and really the whole book of Daniel is pushing back hard against this fundamental assumption we have in our culture that we're running things, we're in control. And so I want to walk through uh, Daniel 6 um, just under three headings. One is, is why, why your city needs you to have a life of prayer, why you need a life of prayer, and, and thirdly, how you get it, how you, actually get con- how you actually lose control, give up control of your life, and enter into the way of, of prayer. So first, why your city needs you to have a life of prayer. Now, last week we were in Daniel 5, the handwriting on the wall passage where God's judgment shows up and says to, to this nation Babylon, you're out. I'm judging you. Your way is coming to an end. And so now in Daniel 6, that's all happened. Da- Babylon has been conquered by the Persian, which means Daniel has an entirely new culture in which to live and navigate and work through that's different than Babylon. And it also means he has a different leader now he has to face, Darius, instead of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, there's this fundamental consistency between Persia and Babylon in Daniel's life. Babylon promoted Daniel, put him in places of influence and power, continually over his life. He rose to the top. And the same thing has happened now in Persia as well. The, the Persians had divided up their kingdom among 120 satraps, which, which almost think like a local city mayor, that, that sort of thing. And, and over all of these satraps, um, the Persians had put three governors, three presidents, as the text I read said. And, and so Daniel was, had worked his way up to one of those three presidents. And now Darius says, Daniel, I'm going to make you the head over, over those three presidents. You're going to be the most important person in the kingdom aside um, from, from me. And that's where the problem begins in our story. 
Because imagine you're a, you've been a Persian your whole life. You've, you've, maybe, you've probably served in the military. You've shed blood for the Persian kingdom. You've contributed to the military success. You've helped overcome invading kingdoms, kingdoms you needed to, over, um, to, to conquer. And now you, you've, you've helped contribute to the greatest empire the world has ever known. And then you hear through the grapevine, through words of gossip, that Daniel is going to be your new boss. This prisoner, this exile, this guy who's religiously backwards, one of the people you helped overthrow is now your boss, now over you. How are you going to feel about that? Well, a group of people start asking that question, and they devise a plan to bring Daniel down. And they go to, to Darius, the most powerful figure over, over the Babylonian portion of the Persian Empire. And, and they go to Darius, and they say, Darius, you need to pass a decree. And, and we're not, the decree's a little confusing um, in, in what it's written, but I think what the decree meant was, was this. It was that if, if you were going to request anything from your God for the next 30 days, you had to go to Darius first for him to give you clearance. And Darius, like most political figures, is always encouraged when people ask to give, give them more power. He, he gra uh, graciously accepts that offer and passes the decree. And so the trap has been set, really both for Darius and Daniel, because Darius likes Daniel. And the trap has been set, and they will both soon walk into it. But before we get to the trap, I, I want to pause and reflect on something that, that's true of Daniel's life that we, we can't miss. That I hear often among Christians that, you know, the culture, it so opposes us that we, we, can't, we can't really advance ourselves. We can't, we can't get a hearing in our, our culture. And, and, and what we see with Daniel is two different secular cultures that are as opposed to his religion as any culture would have been in any day, in any, any, any existence. Two cultures look at the life of Daniel and, and give him the most prominent, important positions. Why? Well, Daniel 6 is setting up two contrasts between the way Daniel operates within the city and the, the kingdom of Persia and the way his opponents operate. And so these men who want to bring Daniel down, you can, you can tell they just assume Daniel's like them, that he has some angle of corruption where he's, he's gleaning off the kingdom for himself, that, or he's negligent in some way, he's not doing his work very well. They, they think they can find something within Daniel to point to him and say, see, he's a bad Persian. But they can't. And verse 4 is very, it's very intentional about, about what it's saying about Daniel and how he's operating within the kingdom. It says, The presidents, the satraps who sought to find a ground against, of complaint against Daniel could find no ground for complaint or any fault. The word fault there is, is a word for corruption. Da Daniel's not corrupt. And in, in ancient times, governments were incredibly corrupt, but not Daniel. He was different. Because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And the word error there, it, it means there was, he wasn't negligent. He, wasn't la he was doing really good work. So he was both incorruptible and did the best work. And that's why Darius looked at Daniel and why the Babylonians looked at Daniel and said, okay, we need you to be in charge of more things. You need more influence, not less. And so Daniel, he's living out what we find in another portion of the Bible, which was written to this time. And, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but in Jeremiah 29, there's this letter that Jeremiah, through, through God, Jeremiah as a prophet, writes to the exiles who lived with Daniel in Babylon. Because what was happening was many of these exiles were saying, move out of the city, get away from the city, pray against the city, work against the city. It's all going to be destroyed in the end anyway. It doesn't Get away from it. And, and what Jeremiah wrote was, was no. You are to seek the flourishing of the city. You are to make sure that if there is a part of the city that is not flourishing, you go in and you work for its good. Don't withdraw. Don't remove. Don't, don't work against. Move in for the good of the city. And so what Daniel is doing is he's living out that call from Jeremiah 29. He's not using the city to advance his life. He's using his life for the good of the city. And it's why Darius, Nebuchadnezzar, every power at, 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 that we read of in, in the book of Daniel gives Daniel more power, more influence. That when it was time to, to dig up dirt on Daniel, not, not as a, just as a bad person in general, but when it was, it was time to dig up dirt on him with regard to the kingdom, they found none. He was a good Persian. He was a good Babylonian. And so to pause and to reflect on that for a moment as Christians, that... Um, that our, our, our city, our county, our schools, our neighborhoods, we should expect to have the same response to us that, that, that Babylon had to Daniel, that Persia had to Daniel. 
that even if those are within our city oppose our faith or, or think that our religion is, is backwards, that our work, what we do as Christians in our vocation through the week, it should be so incorruptible, it, be, it should be so good, it should be so well done that the city looks at us as believers and says, we need you. Right? People should look at Christians and think we're not in it for ourselves. We're not using what's around us to advance our own lives. We are using what's there to advance, uh, advance those around us for the flourishing and the good of the city, not ourselves. And so I spent a lot of time this week reflecting on this text, the way the culture is responding to Daniel in his day. And this past week for us as a country as we've progressed through an election. Right, I've been asking myself, does, does my city think it needs me? Like, like Persia thought it needed Daniel. Right, does, does, does our city think it needs you? Does it think it needs us? And so as we pause as Christians to reflect on this past week, right, we're a deeply divided nation. We're going to be divided no matter who won the election. We are, are divided racially. We're divided politically. We're divided socioeconomically. And I would just ask as Christians, let's pause. Is our city looking at us, at Christians, and saying we need more of them? They're incorruptible. They're not self-interested. They're not willing to step on others for more control. They make sure everything and everyone is flourishing in the city. When cries come up from within segments of the city or culture, say, we feel stepped on, Christians respond to them. Are they saying, we need the church to help heal our divisions? Or are we just another group in the city who fights for our way, whatever the cost? And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we Christians should be going around saying, hey, you, the city, you need us. We're so great and, and awesome. No, what I'm, I'm saying is that if we enter into the city the way Jeremiah says that we should, free of corruption, not with an angle of self-interest, not, not, uh, not letting the, some within our city um, feel stepped on or oppressed, but all flourishing, we should expect Christians in our culture to advance in government. Right? We should expect Christians to be invited into important committees within our city. We should expect the businesses that Christians run to be featured and celebrated within our city. We should expect Christians to be invited into the front lines of the racial, socioeconomic, and political divides that define so much of our country. What I'm not saying is we Christians should be standing up and demanding our place. What I'm saying is we should be so humble and so incorruptible and so much like Daniel. We should be, be wanted in that space. And I... I ask the question, my, my, probably the way I frame it gives myself away. I'm, I don't think our culture is looking at the church like that right now. And so how do we, how do we change? How do we become a people like that? I, let, let's let Daniel 6 just for a moment pause us and frame us. And that is, if we're going to be a people who interact with the city the way Daniel does, we have to be a people of prayer. Because prayer does two things with us and in us. First, it, pre, prayer reorients me around God's priorities, not mine. Right? The fundamental reality of this world is what God is doing and what his kingdom is breaking into, not what I think needs done. Prayer reorients me back to that place. And secondly, prayer puts me in a position of weakness and dependence. Right? You, can't, you can't enter into a life of prayer thinking you have all the answers. Right? You won't get very far with God entering into prayer that way. Right? You cannot pray with, with a sense of confidence in your own abilities. No, we enter prayer as the confessor. Right? That's why we prayed earlier. We start in prayer as a confessor, as weak, as dependent, as needy. And so the city, if it, the city needs us to have a life of prayer right now. Right? To, 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 to live, enter into the life of Daniel. And maybe as we enter into that rhythm, down the road, the city might look to us and say, well, okay, we, we need you again. I'm not sure we're there right now, and that's why the city needs us to have a life of, of prayer. That's, that's point one. Point two, um, that's sort of the cultural angle, the, the second, then why you need a life of prayer. Just why you need a life of prayer to navigate through your daily life. The all Daniel uh, um, had to do to avoid breaking this decree and ending up in the lion's den was just not pray for 30 days. Right? Or just shut your windows and not let anyone see that you're praying for 30 days. All he had to do was keep his religion to himself for 30 days. But that's not what happens. He opens his windows and he does what he's done every day of his life, probably his, his entire time since he got to Babylon. And so just pause with me and consider this for a minute. Daniel was willing to die for his prayer life. It was that central to him. It's yours. It's mine. 
And I want to be careful here because I think that there are things that we pastors could do to make people feel guiltier that are, that are easier than other. And one is prayer. Because, like, when do you ever get to a point where you're like, oh, yeah, I prayed enough this week. Like, if I prayed this much, I'd be guilty before God, but I prayed this much. So I'm okay. Right? You can always pray more. So I'm, the, the, the lesson from Daniel 6 is not pray more. But it's rather to, to, to enter into Daniel has a rhythm to prayer, which we find through the Hebrew scriptures in particular. Um, we didn't hear it in the, te- the part of the text I read, but, but in the Hebrew, there is this rhythm to Daniel's prayer. It's morning, noon, and evening. Every time, three times a day, Daniel entered into this rhythm, morning prayer, noon prayer, evening prayer. And so we've talked about this before, but the Jewish day, it starts in the evening, right? So we, our first prayer in the rhythm of prayer is, is evening prayer, because that, the day starts for the Jewish people and for us as Christians as well. It starts with resting. It starts with sleep. Right, the first prayer of your day is not when you get up, it's when you go to sleep. Because what you're saying to God is, God, I'm, I'm giving all my problems to you. I'm checking out for the next eight hours. The world is yours. You can run it. I'm checking out. Right? I'm resting. Prayer starts with rest. That's why we read um, Psalm 4 earlier. We started our service today with evening prayer. Right? God, we're resting in your sovereignty, in your creation. And then the second prayer in our daily rhythm, it's morning prayer. You wake up to a day that's a third over. God didn't need you for the past eight hours, which means he could probably go without you the rest of this day as well. And he might have some things for you, but he doesn't need you this day. And so you wake up to a day already created, already in motion, a conversation that's already mid-sentence, and you have to catch up with what God's already been saying. Right? And so we, we read Psalm 5 earlier. That's a morning prayer. It's a God, forgive me, guide me, lead me into this day that is ahead. And then Daniel, he had a, a third rhythm, which was noonday prayer, like, right, like a halftime moment, right? Or when you watch a sporting event, there's halftime to reflect on the last, uh, the, the first half of the game and look forward, forward to the, the rest of the game, to retool, to refocus. And that, it's what noonday prayer is. It's a moment to pause. God, what have I missed? What are you showing me? What are you teaching me? God, what's ahead? It, there, there, it's not that Daniel prays all of the time. It's this rhythm. It's evening. It's, it's morning. It's noon. And so I would say, if you struggle with a life of prayer, the answer isn't, hey, you need to pray a lot longer. No, it, find a rhythm. Whether that's evening, morning, noon, or whatever that is, but, but find a rhythm. Set your alarm three times a day. And if, if you don't know what to pray, open up to the Psalms. Buy the book of common, or the common book of, of prayer. And, and more than anything, what I would encourage you is to say, don't feel like prayer has to be really long. What I love about the Bible is the Psalms are short. Jesus encouraged short prayers. Right? I, I thought there'd be an amen from the, somewhere. Right? This, Jesus didn't say, it, hey, you, the longer you pray, the more God will do for you. No, he actually says the opposite. He says, don't pray like that. And so there, there are times for longer prayers, yes, but, but what you see in Daniel is this, this rhythm. And so we brought out um, a tool we use in our children's ministry for, for our kids' prayers. Those are our ki- prayers our kids have written and put in. It's one sentence. And my guess is none of you are going to look at that and say, well, that was only one sentence. God probably just overlooked that. It doesn't matter, right? No, you, no, you read those little cards. They're so cute and precious. There's no way God didn't hear them. And so the, the key for you, it's not, it's not pray all the time. It's not, it's not pray really long, drawn-out, ornate prayers. No, it's, it's enter into this rhythm. I mentioned a second ago, Daniel's probably close to 80 years old at this time, which means if he started this rhythm when he came to Babylon, probably between 12, 15, 16 years old, it means Daniel has prayed 75,000 times in his life at this point. There's no way that didn't shape and change and prepare Daniel to navigate through his world. So the, the narrative, it contrasts Daniel, it moves into this contrast between first Daniel and and these men who, who operate within the city very differently. But then you, you center in on the difference between Daniel and Darius. Between Daniel, the man who is cast into the den of lions, and Darius, who's one of the most powerful men in all the world. And their reactions to their circumstances couldn't be different. That when you read Darius respond to his being trapped, to, to putting Daniel in the lion's den, hear the words that describe Daniel's state of mind in verses 14 through 24 as he wrestles with the fact he's going to put one of the most important people in his kingdom into the den of lions, hear the words that define Darius's experience. Stressed, laboring, sleepless, hasty, crying out, anguish. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. He's, 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 he's falling apart. But listen to the words that Daniel speaks after he spends a night with lions. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, before my God, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Now, one commentator points out that, that 
Daniel, the man who spent his night with, with lions, had a reflective evening of, of quiet prayer, <laughs> of an experience with God. And the man who's the most powerful, one of the most powerful men in all the world, has complete control of his life. He can't sleep. He can't eat. He's in anguish. He's fearful. So I said earlier, you're only offered, there's only two ways you can try to live your life. One is, is trying to be in control, trying to have the decisive say, or you can pray. And so let's pause. Which are you choosing? What life are you entering into? I'm going to offer you two diagnostics, two ways to answer that question for you um, that we see in this text. But first, a life of control is consumed with anxiety, but a life of prayer consumes your anxiety. And so often, I, 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 think the re, I begin to think that the reason why I'm anxious, why I'm concerned, is because of my circumstances. And if I can just get better control of my circumstances, then everything will be all right. And yet Darius, he's one of the most powerful people in all the world. He has almost complete control of his circumstances, but he's stressed. He's losing sleep. He can't eat. He can't sleep. He has no control over his life. Whereas Daniel, who has no control over his life, who from the earliest age has been at the whims of a more powerful empire to himself, Daniel has no inner turmoil, right? You don't get this inner dialogue for Daniel. Should I pray? Should I not? No, he just goes back to praying. Like nothing happened. And I'm sure Daniel was worried. I'm sure he was anxious, right? I'm sure he was concerned, but he wasn't consumed by it. He didn't run from it. He had chosen a life of prayer and his anxiety was consumed. But I would just say, if you are trying to run your life, if you're not living into a life of, of prayer, you're going to be anxious. In fact, you should be anxious because your whole life is riding on you. There's no way you shouldn't feel anxious if you're living that way. I mean, just that, if you're a parent, think of all the ways you can mess up your kids. Think of all the ways you could get fired or ruin your job. Think of all the ways you can ruin your life. If you think you're running your, your existence, you're in control, you have the decisive say, you should be anxious, right? Or think, of, think of it like this. Many of you know I, I don't like to fly. I'm afraid of, of flying. And a large part of that reason is just the thought of saying to someone, hey, why don't you put my body in a rocket and travel 500 miles an hour? That just doesn't sound like a good decision to make. Um, and, and yet, as, I'm, as I fly, I rarely stop and consider, um, if I had the choice right now, would I walk up to the pilot and say, you know what, let me take this thing because I'd feel much more, I'd feel much more settled if I was, I was running, if I was controlling this plane, right? No, that would be stupid, I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the training to grab control of something that powerful. And friends, you and I, we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the foresight, we don't have the intelligence, we don't have the giftedness to grab the controls of our life. It's too powerful. You'll, you'll steer, steer it right into disaster. No, we're called to enter the way of prayer. To begin each day of our life on our bed, just before we go to sleep, saying, God, this world is yours. My problems are yours. You get to deal with them for the next eight hours because I'm checking out. To begin each morning of your life to say, okay, God, um, this day is yours. You've made it. You've already started it. You didn't need me. And now I'm here. Use me. Lead me into your way. And to stop each day at noon and say, God, what have I missed? What are you doing? Where are you at work? Where are you redeeming? Where are you restoring? What are you doing? Help me see it. Don't let me miss it for the next eight, nine hours. A life of control, it, it, will be con, it will be consumed by anxiety, but a life of prayer will consume your anxiety. A second diagnostic then, a life of control, it, it misses the world as it really is. It misses reality, but a life of prayer sees the world as it truly is. This is actually the entire point of next week's sermon, so I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But notice how Daniel responds to his night with the lions in verse 22. He says, my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth. I don't know if that means like there was a physical angel there like that all night or, or if it just meant like Daniel just saw reality differently. Right? The lions didn't eat him because they weren't hungry or because it, just, it, was, a, it was a slow night. For them. No, the, the lions didn't eat Daniel because God held their mouths shut. And so one of the primary points of Daniel is that there, there are these two kingdoms clashing, right? There are the kingdoms of the world, which are opposed to God and everything that he is doing. And there's the kingdom of God. And if you look through history, it almost always looks like the kingdom of God is losing that battle. You look at Daniel's story, right? He's taken from his home. The, the people of God lose a military conflict to Babylon. Daniel is forced into exile. His friends die. He's put in a position of vulnerability, right? He's put in a lion's den. It looks like God's kingdom 
is losing. And then you look at the life of Jesus, right? Basically, every moment of his life, it looks like he's losing. His encounters with the religious leaders, they don't accept him. His encounters with the political leaders of the day, they put him on the cross. The way the crowds turn on him so quickly. If you look at this world, it looks like God's kingdom is always losing. And yet prayer, it opens you to the world as it really is. God is at work all around us right now. He's redeeming. He's restoring. He's at work. He's making all things new. Do you see it? Have you entered into the way of prayer? I think this is something, at least I struggle with this. Maybe, maybe you don't. And I think it's something our culture struggles with because we're trained from our earliest days. You have the decisive say. You're in control. And I think that's why in the American church we struggle to pray more than most cultures that I just spent two days with Chinese church leaders um, last weekend and and when we asked what what do you need from U.S. churches like what what can we offer you what can we provide for you they didn't they didn't want money they didn't want um, us to send people over to them you know the one thing they wanted with earnestness with humility with pleading to us was pray for us pray for us is that you is that your cry of your life you've entered into the way of prayer or or are you anxious are you worried do you see God at work all around you? Or do, you see, do you just see the things that are falling apart? So it raises a question, okay, how, how do we actually have the strength to enter into this way of prayer, to give up a life of control and enter into the way of, of prayer? And then at the end of this narrative, Darius is, is overjoyed that, that God is stronger than him and Daniel has been saved. And so uh, what he say, he, he lets out this bout of praise, which points us towards how to enter into this way of prayer. Here's how Daniel respo- or Darius responds Um, to Daniel's salvation. He says, Daniel's God, he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. That last line, he who saved Daniel from the power of the lions, there's an assumption in that line that there will be lions. Right? And I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard to enter into the, the life of prayer, that we want to control our lives because we, we would never put ourselves in a lion's den. Right? We want control of our lives for good reasons. We want to be happy. We want to be content. We want to have a good life. But you start reading the Psalms. You start entering into the kingdom of God, and what you find is the Psalms are full of trouble. They're full of lions. But friends, that... Our worries, our fears, our anxieties, the things that are now dividing our culture and our city, the lions all around us, are not because you and I don't have enough control over our lives. It's because we've grabbed for control that was never meant to be ours. It's why Darius is anxious. It's why uh, the, the, our, our world is so fractured. It's why we live in anxiety. Because we're all grabbing for our piece of the pie. Right? Our world is filled with people grabbing at control, living in their communities, their cities, making sure they have theirs. And it's not making us free. It is our problem. So God invites you, he invites me out of all of that. He invites us into a way of prayer, into a life among the lions. Not, not free of trouble, not free of worries, not, not living on some cloud somewhere. No, he invites you into the den and he will hold their mouths shut. So why when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he was doing there is he was quoting Psalm 22, and he was saying, go to Psalm 22. If you want to understand what's happening to me right now, go to Psalm 22. And you go to Psalm 22, and you get down to verse 19. You find these words from, from a psalmist written long before Jesus, crying out for deliverance, crying out for salvation, crying out from among the lions. And the psalmist there writes, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And so Jesus cries out Psalm 22, but he wasn't saved from the mouth of the lion. His life was not delivered from the sword. That when he was dead, the executioner pierced his side, and out out, uh, came blood and water to prove that he was dead. And so Jesus, in that moment, what he was doing is he was letting the, the lion's mouth open wide to consume him so that the lion's mouth could be held shut for us. Right? That all the, For all the things we have done, for taking control of our lives and, and the sins we have committed against God, Jesus' cry for salvation went unheard so that our cries for salvation could go heard. Now, do you see Jesus doing that for you? Do you see him on the cross 
giving up his life for you, yours. Do you trust him? Is, is, his life, is your life in his hands? Have you given up control of your own life to enter into his way of prayer? I've said that a life of prayer is not an easy life. Daniel shows us that. It's, a li- it's an invitation into the lion's den. There will be lions. But in a life of prayer, you and I, we can dwell among the lions. For Jesus, who with wounds which prove his power and his love for you and for me, he holds their mouth shut. Let's pray. God, we pause to reflect on the salvation Jesus won for us. That Daniel survived that night with the lions because Jesus did not survive his night. But went into a tomb and came out of the grave three days later. And so we, God, we come to you now needing that salvation, that restoration, that good news of resurrection life, which is available to us in Jesus. God, would you make it real to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One way we enter into this resurrection life is through the meal of communion. It's there where we come in groups of four to six. We take the bread, we dip it in the juice, we eat it together. Um, at the instruction of those who are, are serving us, to remind ourselves weekly his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, right? He went to the lions, so we didn't have to. Um, and so we invite you. You don't have to be a member of our church to, to partake in this meal. You uh, have to have made a profession of faith in Christ. You have to be a Christian. Um, but we invite you to come. And, and as I mentioned, take the bread, dip it in the juice, come in groups of four to six, and um, uh, let those who are instructing you lead you. Um, and so as we, we play some music, um, spend some time, reflect, pray, um, And then as you're ready, come and receive the meal.
Amen. Well, thanks for being with us again. I'm so glad to have you um, with us. As we go in our benediction, I wanted to, to, to end us with um, a noonday prayer and, and uh, using Darius's own words. So if you're comfortable, um, raise your hand to receive the benediction. Um, that our day is half over. God has been at work all around you. How, are, are you watching? Have you seen? He will be at work in the day ahead. May our hearts be prepared. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Let me go in peace.